A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by actress, writer, and producer, Kimberly Sue Murray. I was eight years old when Father of the Bride and My Girl came out in 1991. To say that's an influential age to take in media is an understatement. My small person, who is nine, watches a ton of YouTube videos, and the other day, we had to gently correct them as they called their grandfather a noob mid-board game. Now, both of our movies today are beloved classics for a certain generation of generally young women, and for the most part, they hold up. But what is it that we took from movies like these that were sleepover staples in the early 90s? Now, Kim, this was something I presume you saw young. You were saying My Girl was one of your your favorites growing up. Yes, and I so it came out in 91, so I, I was only three at the time. So I must have seen it like <laughs> a few years later. And uh, it was a favorite film. And I, I, I feel like everyone knows this film. And it's just so heartbreaking. And uh, rewatching it was uh, just like going down memory lane. It's got like a notoriety to it as well. I mean, we're going to get into the film itself, but like you're you're younger than I am. So, yeah. what were your kind of um, movies that were you were growing up with? That, like everyone was renting them for their kids. Like what was what was your sleepover staple? Oh my god, uh, Hocus Pocus. Uh, okay, that <laughs> makes sense. Because I'm actually a little old for Hocus Pocus, so that's great. Yeah, Hocus Pocus, and I actually saw they did like a, a sequel recently, and I I was like, oh, is it going to ruin it for me? Because it was like it's. It's like my favorite film and I watch it every year for Halloween, but I, I ended up seeing it and it, it was fun. It was like a modern hocus pocus and they, they you know, it was it was cool. One of the things that we're interested in, in this podcast is looking at movies and who are they for and at what age group, do, like how does it affect you when you see it at certain ages? And uh, mm-hmm. like this year, we're going to be looking at Crossroads when we talk about 2002, which I know was aimed at young women. And then you watch that movie and you're like, I'm sorry, what's happening now? Like, yeah, this was, this yes. was written by had, Shonda Rhimes, yeah. Yeah, I felt that way when we uh, when I watched uh, Father of the Bride. But we'll get there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into our first movie today. Here we go. So in November of 1991, Macaulay Culkin was one of the biggest stars on the planet. So fresh off Home Alone and released almost simultaneously with Michael Jackson's music video for Black or White, which also featured him, he was the reason families flocked to theaters to see my girl in hopes of seeing him drop some adorable one-liners. And they got that. But the real star of the movie, Anna Klumski's performance, elevates what could be saccharine and forgettable into a genuinely charming little film. It is also full of, if your kids get the jokes, it's not our fault moments that make it so well worth it for viewing for adults and kids of a certain age. At least I think so. Now, Kim, you feel the same way. 100%. Like, I feel like we all had our first kiss with them, right? Yeah, it's it's so... It, like, I was eight when I watched this, and the Anna Klumski character and the, the, the kids are 11. So, like, she's getting her first period. Like, she's going through stuff. So much is happening. So much is yeah. happening, yeah. yeah. The fact that they... Yeah, she's she's... Just also like looking at her body and like the prepubescent body of a woman, of a, a little a girl becoming a woman. It's like it just that brings me back to being 11, 12, getting my period, 
Uh, and also her obsession with death. And like, <laughs> you know, she gets her period and she's like, I'm hemorrhaging. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Well, before we go any further, I just want to give our listeners who may not have seen this film because it is, um, I think it's notorious. And I think a lot of people know it as the movie where Macaulay Culkin dies. And that is the, the yes. joke that's been made. But I don't think a lot of people necessarily know what it's about. So the uh, the wonderfully named Veda Sultanfuss, uh, played by Anna Klumski, um, was uh, is an 11 year old girl. Her mother died in childbirth complications uh, with her. Her father, played by Dan Aykroyd, is a mortician, and it's very much her summer coming of age story. As um, you know, she teases the boys uh, coming into the the uh, the funeral parlor to see a dead body, and like she's got a great sense of humor. She talks directly to the camera, um, and like you just are on her side. And things are really changing for her. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis shows up and starts dating her dad. Like things just. Things just keep happening to this young girl as she tries deeply to just understand what is happening to herself. She has a crush on her teacher, as we all do. Uh, and then <laughs> Macaulay Culkin dies, and it is just uh, doing something lovely for her, and then she has to cope with that. So it's a coming-of-age story, but it's also just honestly packing so much punch into one 90-minute movie. Into one film. Yeah. yeah. It's like, how much more can this kid have? Like, let's see. First kiss, first heartbreak, first, like, witness death, even though you're... You... And it's like multiple heartbreaks. You know, her best friend dies, yeah. and then she's like, I need to, like tell the people I love them, you know? And then she tells her, her she tells her dude that she's in love with him. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's like two heartbreaks oh, back to back. And then, I mean, the, this Anna Klumski performance. So Anna Klumski, this is her first feature film. She'd been working at, in like, um, print media and commercials, I think since she was like four, like it's another Brooke Shields thing where since she was in diapers, she's yeah. been doing this. She's also this, bonkers seasoned performance of performer in touch with her emotions like oh she's so good she's it, ridiculously she's so good. good yeah we should be clear that she doesn't want to talk about this movie anymore she does not like it when people talk to her on the street about it I get it. I get it. 100%. The way she puts it is she's like, it's like people talking to you about the the Christmas play you did when you were 10. Like, you don't want to yeah. keep bringing that up as like the highlight of what your life has been. And also because she's done a lot since, you know, so she kind of wants to, but I think it speaks to how memorable the movie was and how, like, the impact it had. But you also have to wonder about people becoming so attached to this because it's their first time getting to see people talk about things they are going through on screen, like, you know, uh, getting your period, stuff like that. For me, uh, when I got my period, I was uh, the first one of my friends and uh, it was winter. And my mom was away on a work trip and my dad, who is a very stoic man of few words, <laughs> uh, he he didn't have the words. He didn't know what to do. You know, I, I was in bed crying with cramps and all he said is go for a walk. And there's like six feet of snow Walk it outside. off, kid. <laughs> so like a movie like this, a movie where it's like they explain a bit of what it's like and what it means and what was happening to my body would have been. And don't we awesome. all want Jamie Lee Curtis as our adopted stepmom? But isn't that great? She's like, oh, okay, we need to talk. Yeah. And then I love that. She knows she, because being a stepmom, those are big shoes to fill. Especially when she's never had a, a mother figure. Close your eyes. I want to bring out the gorgeous color in them. Now, the first rule in applying eye makeup is you can never wear enough 
blue eyeshadow. Exactly. So uh, that was a really beautiful moment. It's too bad that they didn't really, we didn't really get, we weren't privy to the conversation. Uh, we sort of got the tail end of it, but um, I thought that was really sweet um, because I remember at the time, like I didn't, I was so embarrassed and ashamed and like, I didn't want to talk about it. I just, I just wanted to like, forget it and like go back to being normal. Um, so I think there, I mean, the word responsibility, I don't, I don't know if like movies, if like anyone is responsible for anything, but I think as storytellers, we get to, um, create a narrative. And if we want to change a certain narrative and, you know, if if something has um, if if something is taboo, then we get to change that. So I think it's quite powerful if you if you, had, you do have a message, um, you know, I think you should use it. It's an interesting uh, an interesting film. So uh, it's written by a woman, which is always nice to see. Uh, Larissa uh, yes. Elwani, I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. I've never actually seen an interview where she says her name out loud. So I'm going to believe it. Oh, that's helpful. Uh, I know. Tell me about it. So <laughs> you are uh, also going to know her name. She has very few Hollywood credits, but she also wrote the Brady Bunch movie. I, which I haven't. Oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> I, I, I I can hear. I, can I hear. think I'm going to go down like a 90s movie. I, uh, phase I, I, I can't yeah. recommend it enough. If you're doing a Brady Bunch movie in the 90s, that is the movie you make. And it very much set the tone for what those remake movies were going to be like for the rest. Um, and something I think she's really, really good at is not just these like very deep moments of actual emotional connection, but just this mm -hmm. like brutal, blatant honesty. Um, oh, and I'm a sucker for the way things are, are named originally, because I think it really tells you the intention of what the writer wanted. The original title for this movie is Born Jaundiced, which I love. I, <laughs> My husband hates it. He thinks it's the stupidest thing. How do you feel about it, Kim? You've got a face. <laughs> if I didn't see the poster, because the poster was very cute and I'm like, wanted to see that. I, I'm a, I'm very visual, so I want to see a poster. But just off the title, I'm like, is that a documentary? <laughs> is that a... I don't know. It's very bizarre. I can see why. Yeah, especially. <clears throat> but I yeah. think it's like more of like a, an in, not an inside joke, but I don't know. Until you watch it. Like, I mean, it makes sense because like that is how she was born. Like she's, she, it's that, this hypochondriac element to her that she kind of needs to get over, right? Like she's born deficient in some way. Mm -hmm. But it's, I feel like the movie is so much more. It, it, is that also, is that the name of a kid's title that's going to bring <laughs> Bring them. I, I, I know, yeah. right? <laughs> the kids are like, let's down this. <laughs> yeah, tell me. Well, and then, so, I mean, we're sitting in uh, 1991. So if you want to go back and listen to our 1992 episode about the year of women, we highly recommend it. Um, but so 1992, if you're not familiar with this, Kim, was labeled the year of women in independent film. So oh. it's all these female filmmakers were, or women filmmakers were suddenly making all of these movies. They were getting, they were getting handed money left and right. And then that immediately stopped. But 1992 oh, has God. this like incredible year of just all these amazing uh, independent women filmmakers. Some of them who got to make movies again, a lot of them that did not. Um, but this mm. was very much part of that wave, that early wave. So uh, Larisse graduated from school. Um, and then this was what she wrote as her senior thesis. And then it was immediately, oh, I, I know, it. it was immediately purchased by Imagine Entertainment, which is Ron Howard's company. Um, and they started to develop it. And that's when it became uh, I Am Woman which is a terrible name, and I'm so glad they didn't go with that. 
And then it became my girl. Yeah. And even my girl, I kind of have an issue with that title. Like it rolls off the tongue, but it's like, you're whose girl? Yeah. Like it's a catchy song, but like, especially for something of someone who has serious father issues and for a father who is neglectful, not because he's a bad dad, just because he genuinely doesn't know what to do. Um, I just think it's a really interesting choice of a title. Like it's a very marketing driven title rather than an appropriate. I think, I think they went for the marketing. I think because it's so catchy and everyone loves the song and uh, it's easy to remember. And I'm sure you caught it also shows up in father of the bride. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Same year, same song. Big deal. It was a good song. Yeah, it's very catchy. It's so good. So I think they they probably compromised. They were like, let's go for it catchy. Because they knew they had a... They were like, this is going to be a classic. I think they knew. I don't think so. And here's the thing. You don't think so? I don't. And here's the thing is that I think it hit a zeitgeist they didn't know it was going to hit. Because when you read reviews of it, I mean, Ebert loved it because Ebert loves movies about little girls. And I don't mean that in a weird, creepy way. He just loves movies about little girls. Um, And especially coming-of-age stories. And he was always a big supporter of that. And he, of course, loved this one. Uh, But a lot of other filmmakers, or a lot of other uh, critics, especially white male critics, which there tended to be most of the time, Mm -hmm. didn't understand why it wasn't for them. I also appreciate that because a lot of people were like, why isn't it weirder? Why isn't she weirder? Why aren't we seeing more stuff with the dead bodies? Like, I, I, I get it that they want it to be for them because it's such an interesting t- and direct take on death that you don't even see in adult movies without getting saccharine. Mm-hmm. So you can feel them wanting it to be for them, but it's just not for them. It's a really it's interesting thing. for you. Yeah. yeah. Which you're going to find when you go back and read a lot of reviews that that isn't not for me is different than not good is not uh something people understand for a very long time it's really now only something we're kind of starting to get to grips with in criticism i honestly like as an actor i have stayed away from reviews because uh, for my for my mental well-being <laughs> that's fair <laughs> I, I think as a filmmaker you want to know your audience but i mean anything Outside of that, it's like, I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but like the movie is not for you. I mean, if you have an open mind, you might learn a thing or two on parenting. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are some moments watching it from as an adult point of view where I'm like, okay, this is a little heavy handed. The fish dying where like she wants him to throw back the fish and it she she asks him is like, is it still alive? And it's floating upside down and it's very dead. And she he lies to her to save her feelings. And then they just linger that extra second longer on the fish. I'm like, okay, give me a break. Like, I know you're going to make me cry over yeah. Macaulay Culkin in a minute. Don't make me do it over a fish. Like, Over uh, uh, a fish, yeah. No, no, it's true. So talking about the Culkin performance here. Now, as I mentioned, he was like the biggest star on the planet after Home Alone came out. Like, enormous. Huge, yeah. He uh, obviously has lived off that for his entire life. Uh, he just keeps getting more and more influxes of cash. As people, like, I think there was a Super Bowl commercial recently where he just played Kevin McAllister again. Uh, and I'm sure they just That's they insane. just drove a dump tr- truck full of money. Residuals. Thank you. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. Is it for the original movie? Because I looked at this and I was, I was curious because I kind of knew a bit of him and the Culkin's history. I knew it wasn't good. I knew it was one of those very much like, you know, emancipated at 14 things, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. he was only paid $100,000 for his first, for Home Alone. He got 100000 which, you know, seems reasonable for a child actor. But also, in 1991, that's, isn't that a lot that, of money? Yeah, 1989 is when that one came out. Yeah, 89. yeah. Okay. so he made 100000 on that one. But when Home Alone 2 came around, which when he was on the promotional trail for My Girl is when he was filming Home Alone 2, 
and he's doing an interview with Bobby Wygott, who is like, if you if you do any sort of film criticism or film history stuff, you will know her because she was one of the biggest interviewers on the circuit for decades. She's interviewed everybody, and all of her all of her archives are on YouTube. So you can watch her okay. interview basically everybody for every movie you can possibly imagine. And she's interviewing Macaulay Culkin, and she's like, well, if you weren't here, where would you be right now? He's like, at home, asleep. In, asleep. He said in bed. And you know what? That interview, it was a bit heartbreaking because, you know, she's asking him like, okay, so what's your next film? He's like, oh, it's it's this film. It's like, what's it about? I don't know. I haven't read the yeah. script. So he had movies lined up because he was a movie uh-huh. star, but he had very little say. Like they would just tell him what to do and he would just do it because he was a kid and he liked to act. But like he had no say. He was signed on to stuff without without knowing. Oh, my God. That's not a that's I, that really hit me. I was like, shit. Yeah, it's it's well, we, you have another Culkin in Father of the Bride as well. That's uh, Kieran Culkin. Yes, in Father of the Bride. Kieran, if you yeah. couldn't get Macaulay, you were getting Rory. You were getting one of the other Culkins. Oh, you're getting one yeah, of them. Yeah, if you need a precocious child. But the thing is, like, he's just so he's he's amazing. Like, he's so magnetic and he's so endearing and like he can handle that dialogue. Like, that's why he was such a breakout star in Uncle Buck and why Home Alone was basically written yeah. for him was him in those yeah. scenes opposite John Candy. It's ridiculous how well he's handling himself. Yeah. No, I mean, he's a natural for sure. So for Home Alone 2, he made $7 million. <laughs> so apparently it was one of those things where he he he, he was doing a big interview sur- circuit because he, ru- he uh, wrote a memoir specifically talking about, you know, emancipating from his, his parents. His father was a quote unquote failed actor in his father's mind. And one of the reasons he was so difficult yeah, to deal with is that he was uh, he was always like, well, my son has accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish by age 10. So, you know, what do I do? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of things going on. But he didn't know how much money he had. It was one of those, he said, he, as he puts it, you turn 18 and uh, the, the money guys hand you a piece of paper with how much you're worth. And then you have to decide what to do from there. And so uh, I'm just, I can't even imagine that. Is you're just like day in, day out doing these things, growing up on set and then all of a sudden you're like, here and you go. don't even have a childhood. Like here you are making movies about being a kid and growing up and coming of age and you don't even have a childhood. Yeah. It's, it's quite sad. I, I, I don't know if, you know, when I have kids, if I'm ever going to either protect them from the industry or like if they ever show a passion for it, if I'm going to encourage, I, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's Anna Klumsky talks about this. Uh, she, of course, as yeah. people know, um, took a huge break from acting. Like she disappeared and then came back with a massive yeah. vengeance uh, on like uh, In the Loop and of course Veep where she's been nominated, I think for five yeah. Emmys at this point. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah, so. um, but she talks about how like, you lose people, especially when you're in a movie that has this sort of nostalgia factor, people lose the idea that they don't own you, that they didn't actually mm-hmm. grow up with you, that you are not a part of their life. And so, like, she, mm-hmm. when she was younger, like, people would want to touch her and, like, talk to her like she knew them and tell them all her problems. It's like, I'm 11. Like, what? What am yeah. I supposed to do? And um, I think we're a bit better now. But especially then, like, I know teen magazines were much more of a thing and we were very much, Mm -hmm. like, innocently sexualizing, especially young men in, like, Tiger Beat and things like that. Um, And it's, uh, with this one, I thought this was weird, um, was that the MTV Music Awards awarded the My Girl Kiss the best kiss that year. And I was like, that's weird. weird. Like, that's not what that's that's for. Like, that's, like, 
Like, who is protecting the kids yeah. here? I just thought that was the weirdest oh thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I hope I'm not ruining my girl for anyone. I, th- I really like that this movie. I think it's, uh, from what I understand, it was very responsibly shot, that the kids were on board for everything. They were talked through for most things. Yeah. When you are seeing her cry, she is uh, emotionally connecting with stuff her mom is saying. Like, for example, her mom, w- or her actual mother, would say, see the casket? Imagine I'm in the casket. Like, things like that. Her mom was coaching her. Her mom would coach her through that. So I'm like, "Eh, I don't know how great that is for a kid's psyche. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's not, uh, you hear worse horror stories than that, for sure. I mean, at least she had her mom there supporting her and it wasn't just a bunch of strangers. I'm, I, you know, it's so funny because when I wanted to be an actor, I was like nine. And I was from a small town, no opportunities. I didn't, you know, I was traveling eight hours to like an open casting call. And I always, I was like, I want to be in Hollywood by 18. And then I got to 18. I was like 25. (laughs) And then I got to 25, like 30. And now I'm like, oh, whatever. (laughs) If I don't get there, it's fine. I Um, think you're doing okay, Kim. I'm not worried about you. (laughs) And now, but I'm looking back and I'm like, thank God I wasn't a child actor. Thank God I wasn't robbed of my childhood and my 20s. Like only now am I like, okay, I have like the confidence, the wisdom, just like a head on my shoulders that I'm like, if I were to hit big, I would know how to handle it and how to protect myself from all of that noise, that outside noise. Um, But I can only imagine that like, 11, 12, going through that. Yeah. Especially like when you end up being in the biggest movie of the the decade, right? Like I just, that's the thing about Macaulay that I'm just so fascinated by is that like, I I understand he went through some rough patches for a while there, it seems. But when you see him on the circuit now, he is so willing to joke about this and so open and honest and like available to to do these like talk showy circuit things. And of course he wrote the Mm -hmm. memoir and things like that. But one of my favorite things is he has a, a a lifestyle mockumentary blog called Bunny Ears. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yes, yes. You. Uh, yes, it's, yes. It's, it's it's meant to <laughs> lampoon like goop is what it's intended to do. And he does a whole yes. interview where he's interviewing the bees that killed him in the movie, and they're like they're the same bees oh from Candyman. And like I'm like, okay, that's good. That's very clever. But it must have been cathartic for him to write his book. I mean, once you decide to write a book, you know, you you're putting yourself out there. You're opening yourself up. Um, but it must have been really cathartic for him to like take control of the narrative. I mean, that's the other thing is that you put so much speculation on people, right? Like oh, with yeah. uh, Anna Klumsky leaving for so many years and to go live a normal life and mm-hmm. go to university. And she uh, apparently was a fact checker for Zagat. Like she would have to call restaurants. Yeah, that's what <laughs> Which is so amazing. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, you're getting a call from Anna Klumsky. Remember that kid from My Girl? I mean, she met her husband there who was not even remotely involved in the industry. But good for her for like knowing what she needed and then also being able to come back. She's got a great coming back story, which are you familiar with this? Why, how she came no, back? No, I'm not. So she was miserable. She had no money. She's living in Chicago. It's cold all the time. She has her boyfriend. She loves her boyfriend who's who has eventually become her husband, but she's like crying on her lunch break. She's like, why am I not happy with what's going on? And there's a psychic who was handing out flyers on the corner of different things. So she was like, all right, well, I need direction from something. I'm going to go do this. And she went to see the psychic. And the first thing the psychic says, the psychic says is, are you that girl from My Girl? And she's like, yeah, great <sighs> psychic. Thank you. Appreciate that. But she, the advice that she got from this psychic was, well, you're not done. 
Like you, it's you're very clear you're not done. Like you want to go give it one more kick at the can. And she was like, no, I don't. Okay, I totally do. And she okay. completely reassessed her career trajectory, her life. She went to journalism school yeah. uh, and then decided, she's like, well, you know, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it. And it's interesting. She talks about retraining again as an adult actor. Because she's like, when you're a kid, yeah. imagination is your life. And that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to do much, right? You just be. But then when she's an adult, she's like, I had to start taking classes again and actually learn how to act and how to do this. But almost as an adult, you have to unlearn. I find that you have to, like, if you can tap into your inner child and access that imagination, and we all have it, but uh, we also have a a whole lot of ideas. (laughs) But I find that as an actor, sometimes I just, you just need to unlearn. Go back to basics. Go back to being a, a a kid in the sandbox. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And can I tell you? Okay, because uh, I don't know if my my sister's going to listen to this. <laughs> but, so one of her movies that she did a few years uh, later, um, it was called uh, Gold Diggers. She did with Secret. Christina Ricci. Was it Christina Ricci? Yes. Or was it Thora Birch? It was one of the other two. It, it, it was with uh, Christina Ricci. Okay. So that movie I watched with my sister. In French, because we're from like a French town. So it was dubbed in French. And the the story of this like Molly Morgan, who like, I honestly can't remember, but I remember the impact that the Molly Morgan had on me. And so when, uh, so Christina Ricci's character gets stuck, uh, or maybe it's, it's the opposite. Okay. One of them gets stuck uh, in, in, a, in a cave and uh, she's like, okay, you have to stay strong like more, more Molly Morgan. Stay strong like Molly. And then she goes to get help. And so even to this day, when my sister and I, one of us is going through a hard time, we'll say, you know, sois pas comme Molly Morgan. <laughs> like wonderful. still, like it's like 30 years later and we're still like telling each other to be strong like Molly Morgan. That's anyway, wonderful. it's funny because I did, uh, I worked with Christina Ricci on Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. Uh, my God, years ago, but I I had to tell her. Yeah, I was like that movie. I don't know if anyone's watched it, but for me, that movie was everything. And me and my sister still talk about it. And yeah, and she, and she thought she thought it was really cute. <laughs> that's adorable. No, it's I mean that's what my girl is for so many people. Uh, Emily Gagne, who was uh, our senior producer here for the show, she obviously is like an enormous, enormous fan of this. She wanted to be here for this episode, but it was unavailable. But yeah, I know this this means so much to her. There's so many people. This was their first encounter with death. Like when you're teaching yeah. kids about death. Um, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole looking of like, okay, like I'm always curious about the first ofs in cinemas. Like when do we decide to tell movies about certain things and for certain people? So the history of like dead friends is actually pretty limited when it comes to to kids movies. We only really start talking about that in the 90s. Bridge to Terabithia is the other one I think that messed up a mm. lot of kids. But mostly it's dead pets. Like it's Old Yeller oh, yeah. or it's Bambi or it's yeah. something like that, but right? It's it's not just uh, death, it's it's the death of a young person yeah. that is so shocking yeah. and so heartbreaking. You can't help yourself. It just cracks you open. Well, and especially watching it as an adult who has a child. And they, the thing that they do really smartly 
is that you see her talk to the mom of Thomas J. They have a scene with Thomas mm-hmm. J's mom. And that's just like, you know, salt in the wound <laughs> moment of like, not only is this young man gone, but on top of that, you then have to deal with the grief of the parent, right? So you just have all these wild levels of grief that you're dealing with. It's I know, yeah. fascinating. And she says, will you, will you come visit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely painful. Now, there is a My Girl 2. We do not need to discuss My Girl 2, I don't think. I don't even know if I saw it. It's, uh, it, I don't need, it's just the further adventures. Like, there's, he, the, the second, she's not some sort of, like, death trap where, like, these kids die every time they enter her orbit. That is not what happens. She just keeps losing her ring, you know? <laughs> In, like, a shark tank or, you know. It, I, that's so funny that you said shark because that's where my brain went to in the water <laughs> yeah. and there's probably a shark. Yeah. That's a, 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 who was uh, Austin O'Brien? It's Austin O'Brien who's in that one, who's the the other love interest in that one. But uh, yeah, it's just the further adventure, adventures of, of Veda Sultanfuss, greatest name of any character. Gotta say, that's pretty oh, solid. Yes, 100%. Uh-huh. Yeah. But this also inspired imitators because it was such a huge success. Like this was mm. ridiculous how much money this movie made. Um, just in box office alone, we're talking over a hundred million dollars. And then on top of that, you add how many people I'm sure rented this movie and bought the VHS yeah. for their kids, et cetera, et cetera. Tons of cash. Um, yeah. But this inspired Fly Away Home, which is uh, with Anna Paquin and Jeff, Jeff okay. Daniels. Yeah. Jeff Daniels. Um, yeah, where it's... Uh, they, she, her mom dies in a car crash at the very beginning of the movie. And then she kind of has to deal with the grief of that with her dad and a flight, a bunch of geese, uh, obviously. And then Bogus, <laughs> where Gerard Depardieu plays an imaginary friend to a little boy that just lost his mom. So both of these were greenlit directly after uh, the movie. Yeah, they were like, this sells. Yeah, yeah, they were greenlit directly afterwards. But both were not good or were going through some sort of rights yeah. issues, and they got shelved and didn't come out till 96. But they are definitely inspired by the My Girl boom. There was supposed to be a number three of the My Girl franchise. But, oh, really? at, but at that point, the kids were just too old. Or uh, And I think Anna Klumski at that point was like, I'm out. Like, she left when I'm she— out. I think when she was 15 or 16, because she basically said she's like, when I started to have to go to the dermatologist and quote unquote, watch my weight, my weight and all this. And I was just getting all these comments on my body. She's like, that's when I just didn't want to. Well, because they want you to be a kid forever. And you're like, uh, and puberty is awkward. It's just, oh man, it's it's wild. (laughs) Is it ever? (laughs) Perfect. And I think that is the perfect place for us to head on to our second movie uh, because little girls are going to grow up and they're going to get married. Married most of the time. At least they do in movies like this. Yes. That's coming up after the break. Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? (laughs) The money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog who likes very fancy things. And and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, You and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something, Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of, of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost, even the big boys. And like, forget about, uh, you know, discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out. And it's always very satisfying 
when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. The original Father of the Bride film version in 1950 featured legendary actors Spencer Tracy, Joan Bennett, and Elizabeth Taylor. It was directed by Vincent Minnelli. It was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor. These are very big shoes to fill when it comes to a remake. But Nancy Myers and Charles Shire were up for the task of updating the story, which I think is generationally relatable. There is a modern 2022 version out featuring Andy Garcia and Gloria Estefan as the parents. The story goes, a dad freaks out when his child, who he still sees as a baby, gets married, and it's very expensive. Now, Kim, you hadn't seen this one before. I No, I hadn't. And so I, I had a good time watching um, and then I saw that there's even a, a second, there's a sequel. Yes. And, and, and so I was like, what, did she get divorced and get married again? <laughs> no, did she's pregnant. watch the sequel? Yes, 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 so she's pregnant. <gasps> oh, she's pregnant. She's pregnant, they're having babies. And then the second one is, is Diane Keaton is pregnant at the same time. So they're having simultaneous babies. Wait, what? <laughs> yes, that is what is happening in that movie. <laughs> well, now I have to watch. <laughs> and uh, Frank is also back because now Frank is like a, a okay. like a, a birthing coordinator, almost like a doula. Oh my! So goodness. yes, no weddings, just just all pure Frank. So that is uh, that is part two, and there is a part three ish that came out during the pandemic for a fundraiser uh, hosted by Reese Witherspoon, of all people, where it's um, the family now in 2020 on Zoom doing their Zoom check-in together. Oh, my God. So that exists. And it's all for charity. It's All right. Yeah, it's uh, sponsored by Netflix. It's all on YouTube. It's adorable. Now, if people have not seen this, Kim, tell people a little bit about what this movie's about. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on my summarization skills. <laughs> I believe in skills. you. <laughs> Uh, so it's basically the story of um, of Annie, uh, played by Kimberly Williams, and uh, she comes home from uh, studying abroad to her parents, George Banks, who's played by uh, Steve Martin, and his wife, Nina, uh, Diane Keaton, uh, best parents ever. Yeah. Um, so she comes home after studying abroad, and she uh, tells them that she's engaged to be married, uh, and uh, I mean... I'm assuming this is a thing because I don't know. It's it's the it's the bride's family who needs to pay for the wedding. That is correct. And so they start organizing this massive, massive um, wedding planned by the flamboyant, flamboyant uh, Martin Short as Frank <laughs> Frank uh, Engelhoff. Yes, yes, and he's inspired by a a real person. Yes. We'll get there. It's, yeah, but, he's so great. That's the story. <laughs> it's 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 about a father letting go of his his baby girl who's grown up to be a woman. And did you like this? I did. It still really holds up, doesn't it? It's really it charming. It really does. Although I have many issues with, I, I guess, like the the culture of uh, 
women getting married and, and, and it has to be a big wedding and the money involved and that the wedding culture I have an issue with. However, the movie is great. Yes. Yes. So this is very much a nineties version of this. Now what's fascinating about it is getting to have the 1950s version, the 1991 version, and now the 2022 version and seeing what those film, what those writers and filmmakers thought was important about this. I think infinitely relatable story in each of the generations. The casting of the lead actor as well, because I love the fact that you brought up Annie first, uh, because it's like... Well, that's who I related to, you know, being... But yes, it's really, it's the father's story. It is. It's totally, it's him. It's true. He's the lead. (laughs) See, but I guess it's so funny because I was watching it and I was, I was her, but it's his story. It's his story. And I mean, he's the one who introduces it. He's the one who brings us out at yes. the end. He's the one who's like talking, he's breaking the fourth wall. Thank you, my girl. Apparently this is what we're doing this year. <laughs> and he's just, it, the biggest thing is it's it's Steve Martin's movie because Steve Martin kills this role. He is so funny. He is so funny. I, you know, uh, opening monologues when you're talking directly to camera, I've never been a fan of that. But then... When I bought this house 17 years ago, it cost less than this blessed event in which Annie Banks became Annie Banks McKenzie. I'm told that one day I'll look back on all of this with great affection and nostalgia. I hope so. He's so good in it yeah. that I was able to uh, forgive the opening monologue. <laughs> well, that's how the 19 that's how the 1950 version opens as well. Okay, so there was So like a, it's Spencer Tracy doing that direct the wedding is over, it's the director dress. How did we get here? It's the exact same ha, opening. Yes. Um and then the two, the 2022 version with Andy Garcia. That's right. Spencer Tracy, Steve Martin, Andy Garcia? Well, let's not go down. It's, 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 uh, that's okay. It's a whole other thing. But uh, it, that one is um, because it's very much an immigrant story because it's about a Cuban-American woman marrying an, yes. a Mexican-American man, which is like fascinating culture clash yeah. there. What's the difference? Very interesting. Um, but it's very much not about his, it's not about the wedding per se. It's about him and his immigrant experience and what he's always wanted to give to his children, what he's sacrificed in his own marriage. I love that. Yeah. So it's, that's how they've updated it for 2022. So you don't have the same kind of, of thing. But I can see how, like, had I watched this film when I was, you know, at the time, let's say I was 20 watching it in 1991, I would have had a different experience. Yeah than watching it at my age today. Do you know what I mean? Because like, I'm very much of like, save your money, put it towards (laughs) a down payment, like elope, don't invite anyone, that's drama, you know, all that stuff. (laughs) Well, we're going to get into the Nancy Myers, uh, the Nancy Myers experience, I think is the best way to call it, is uh, she is, of course, the queen of the the rom-com. She co-produced this with her husband at the time, Charles Shire. She wrote the screenplay, and she is now known as, like, I think one of the most influential voices in rom-coms. Like, she's basically shaped rom-coms since the... 80s? She wrote the formula. Here's the thing. She didn't, but she's really, really good at adapting the formula. Because if you all look right. at all her biggest hits, they are all based on previous movies. Mm. So, like, this is based on the 1950s, uh, Father of the Bride. Uh, the Parent Trap, which was her directorial debut, is, of course, The Parent Trap. Uh, she goes with a ton of, like, screw- screwball comedy uh, concepts. Yeah. Um, you know, she's just updating it for this uh, aspirational entirely white woman world where like these these yeah. women are um like even when you look at uh, Steve Martin and Diane Keaton right like these are very much mm-hmm. uh, aspirational wealth people obviously they have 
people in a higher income bracket when what they're marrying into when they go to Bel Air. Um, but I mean, these are not people that are struggling by any stretch of the imagination. He runs a shoe yeah. factory. <laughs> like, and I, I think, um, you know, they talk about like the, 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 Steve Martin talks about how the film is, is, is not, it's not every family. This is like a, the fairy tale family, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, there, there's a, a certain, uh, socioeconomic, uh, like this film. Yeah. Like I don't relate, like my parents don't have the money to pay for a hundred thousand dollar wedding. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's and this also was uh, and that Steve Martin points out, this is a new standard of us seeing weddings on film. Um, and mm. that it also when I started going down kind of like uh, wedding dress, I'm fascinated by wedding dresses in in films and kind of what they say about the characters, like if they're like huge and ostentatious or like if the brides make their make their bridesmaids wear, wear like really hideous dresses, what that says about oh, them. Like it's just I think it's just such an important part of character that I love when costume designers do it. Until this movie came out, the Princess Diana dress was the standard. The huge sleeves, mm. the lace everywhere, the giant ball gown, that was the standard. This stripped that silhouette right back. And if you go on like Elle or Vogue or you read any like history of fashion stuff, this is always cited as the dress that changed a bunch of the way women were dressing at the time until wow. you get to the mid, mid-90s, like 96, 97, Vera Wang comes in. And um, those like really, really slim down silhouettes where it's just like a sash and like a white tube. Like that's, that's yeah. where it goes until we get Isn't back. Isn't fascinating the influence that like movies have on people? Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. I never, I, wow. Yeah. Movies and royalty. Cause it, it stays like that until you get to Kate Middleton and then, then the lace and the, the standard style comes back. Dresses. <laughs> <laughs> so, so don't watch it. <laughs> I, I will. I appreciate that recommendation, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> I just think it's such an important part. And then seeing, you know, what they want as a part of a wedding and the way weddings change, right? Like what is expected mm-hmm. to, what is a standard and expected to be at a wedding changes as well. And what you're seeing here is very much through Frank, what would be expected to be at a wedding of this, of this type, right? Of this type, yeah, and, and you know different cultures, and and uh, you know I went to a, a Moroccan uh, Moroccan Jewish wedding two summers ago, and it was massive. They really know how to party, but I'm just like, <laughs> and what is expected to you of you, like if you're if you're religious or if you're part of a certain culture, if if you have a big family, like who pays? Like it's I I find that quite. Um, interesting and also i think that's why because it, it was growing up it was expected like all my friends you know they say like little girls they they dreamed about their their wedding dress and their wedding day and their their husband i went the opposite i kind of like rebelled against that uh because it was expected of us yeah and this is very much playing into that aspirational element where like Yes. Annie is getting everything she wants. She does not get get the word no ever. Yeah, and, and and like mom is feeding into it. Talking about updates and the way we look at things. So the reason why she pull, she uh, calls off the wedding. So in all three movies, she calls off the wedding <laughs> as like the cliffhanger point. Now, do you want to yes, tell people course. why she call, why she calls off the wedding? <sighs> Okay, her uh, fiance, uh, I forget his name. Brian, his name? I know he's Brian Bri- McKenzie. Yes. He's just, it's the whitest name, the, the whitest kid I you know. know, Brian McKenzie. He gives her a gift uh, and it's a blender. Yeah. And 
she takes offense. She's she's hurt by it, by the meaning of it, because she thinks, she reads into it. She thinks that it means that he wants her to be a stay-at-home mom. And she has, she knows she's she she wants a she wants to be a career-driven woman. And and she's like, I can't, I can't, I can't be with this person. We have to call off the wedding. Which, you know, when I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, she's such a child. She's overreacting. Yeah. But I can see now, like, you know, 1991, especially since it's like a remake of a 50s movie, I can see why they explored that. Because I feel like nowadays it's like, it feels like an exaggeration, but perhaps back then it wasn't. It's it could have been. feeding into that, like, she's an independent woman. We really want to emphasize that she's an independent woman. And I, I get that. What I find interesting is in the 1950s version, she calls off the wedding for a damn good reason. She finds out on their honeymoon that they, when they go on their honeymoon, they're going to Nova Scotia, because I guess that's what you did when you lived in upstate New York or whatever, um, that her her husband's just going to take off for three days and go fishing without her. And she says, is this what our, my life's going to be like, right? Is it just going to be that you're going to go off with the guys whenever you want? You're not going to come back to me and confer with me. Is this is this what married life is going to be? And I don't think I want that. <laughs> see, I don't know where I'm from, but I'm like, that's good. Yeah, you go see your guys. I'm going to go see my girls. <laughs> but in the middle of your honeymoon when you're supposed to be spending oh, yes. time together, like that's the thing. Yes, which that's a good reason. That's a good reason. It's great. Actually, that's a good reason. It's totally yes, great that's reason. That's a great reason. Um, and the, then, blender, yeah. the blender, I thought was like, Really? Yeah. It feels a little tacked on. Like we have to make her independent in some way. And it's like, mm. it felt, I was just like thinking maybe, maybe they're trying to like, maybe at the time when, when women were like trying to assert themselves as like career driven and like not just stay at home moms. And I'm like, maybe it's, it was a, a time thing that I'm not getting, but I was like the a blender. Are you serious? It's also very much a hallmark of Nancy Myers is that, um, are you familiar with how she started out or have you seen any of her other films? No. This way? Okay. So she, I mean, I've seen some of her yeah. films, but I just, I don't know her story. Okay. So she started out actually wanting to go to journalism school and then she ended yeah. up, um, falling in love with movies after seeing the graduate and being like, I think I'm going to try to write movies. So she, uh, and she got inspired by uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show as we all did. And so so from there, she uh, teamed up with uh, Charles Shire actually pretty early on, and the two of them pitched and wrote a screenplay called Private Benjamin. Are you familiar with this film? Private Benjamin? No, I don't think so. Okay. It's Goldie Hawn. So in, in 1980, and this will be in the TV series of season four, so if people want to know more about this, I can't recommend it enough. 1980 also becomes this mini year of women, where that's the year of nine to five, where Jane Fonda establishes her own company in order to make women-driven movies, and you get nine to five, which was this huge hit, massive Oscar winner. You also get Private Benjamin, which was uh, a pregnant Goldie Hawn saying, I don't like the roles they're giving me. They're all super cutesy. I want something amazing for myself. So she creates her own production company as well. And Private Benjamin is the first film she decides she wants to do. No studio wants to touch it because, of course, they don't. Finally, she gets Robert Shapiro from Warner Brothers basically, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, threatens him into it to make him buy it and do it on, like, a lower budget. This film is a mega hit. Oscar nominations for her and for Eileen Brennan. Um, it wins wow. WGA awards for the for the script, like basically launches everybody's career into the stratosphere. There's a TV series based on it, like it's huge. So that's how Nancy Myers starts. That's her first screenplay. Whoa. And then from there, she goes on and she does a couple more movies that were like moderate successes. She's got one called Irreconcilable Differences about a child played by Drew Barrymore divorcing her parents, played by Shelley Long and uh, 
Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> so it's like, I oh love boy. That. So there's that. And then the the next me- the next mega hit she has is with Diane Keaton called Baby Boom, about this executive woman who suddenly inherits this child that she now has to start looking after. Oh my God. No, I haven't seen oh, I'm back. I have to go back. Yeah. So this is these two are mega hits. After that, okay. is she kind of it kind of goes away for like she she's pitching around she's figuring it out and then Cindy Williams of all people from Laverne and Shirley says hey you know what I was watching on TV last, last night this father the bride movie it's a good one and I think it can make a good remake and so she was like she had a look at it and she's like I think you're right and so she decided to update it and if you watch the two movies beat by beat they are really similar like very oh, very wow. similar like the yeah it's all the all it's hitting the same notes. And I think it just speaks to how incredibly strong that first uh, that first version is, especially because the first version is written by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who are names you might not recognize, but you mm-hmm. may recognize, oh, It's a Wonderful Life, which they also wrote. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Like, we're talking about, like, film royalty here. So you're starting from a structure already. Well, yeah, when the bones are so good, you know, you're just you know, changing the outfit. And yeah, and the 2022 version stays the same. Like they did Easter Parade. They did the Thin Man series. So like, it's all quippy and fun. I actually recommend- Did you like it? The the 50s version? I actually recommend it. No, but the newer version, the 2022. Okay. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things in it on how we update- and how, what we think updates are. I think it's got a great concept. The biggest issue is it's not funny. Well, it's not a comedy. <laughs> it's the, yeah. the issue. They're dealing with a lot of big ideas, a lot of big thoughts, and they just don't think they have the real estate to deal with it. They also expand the characters a bunch. So now the mm-hmm. second child is a, a girl, and it's she's an aspiring costume designer who just can't get her shit together. She's the second least, the least she- loved child is the second child. So then she ends up designing the bridesmaids' dresses and the wedding dresses and creating them herself. And that's her big, like, breakout moment to prove to her dad she can succeed. Do you think there's, uh, like, too many, like, sub-stories? There's just way too much going on. There's a whole thing. Because Father of the Bride is a very simple, simple, simple simple story. It's literally they're planning a wedding. The mom and the dad are getting divorced. Like, that's the other thing happening in the the 2023 version. Like, yeah, there's just too much going on. The only thing I do have with that, I again, I like the 50s version better, is that the mom has more to do in the 50s version. Diane Keaton, I feel like, doesn't do a ton here. No, no. She's kind of uh, just enabling the whole thing and... Um, Being awesome because she's Diane Keaton. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. But she's just sparkles. That's it. Yeah. It's all about Frank. It is. It is all about Frank. But I mean, this is, this obviously isn't the first time that Steve Martin and Martin Short were paired together. That's the Three Amigos is their first film. Yeah. Well, they go away. It was like, what, 40 years of friendship? Like, it's really impressive. Pretty much, yeah. Well, they met because they had so many mutual friends uh, crossing over the SNL, SCTV crowds. So they met in person. And then when when, um, Steve Martin wrote Three Amigos, he called Martin Short over to come read the script. And the first thing Martin Short did was look at one of the Picassos, because he's a huge art collector on uh, Steve Martin's wall. And was like, um, wow, is that a real Picasso? I didn't think your movies made that much. Like, just gave him a little slap. And then when Martin Short was on his way out, he was like, it was nice to meet you. You weren't as charming as I thought you would be. And a friendship was cemented. So Yes. That's that's oh, bitchy I that. jokes. I love them. So, yeah. So, I mean, and those two just play so well off each other. Oh, oh it's 
beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And especially, like, I don't know how you look at that Franck character and keep a straight face. Like, it is the ultimate straight man and the ultimate goofus. Oh, my. Right away, I realized this was a mistake of gargantuan proportions. This guy was going to coordinate our wedding? How? With subtitles? So when you told me that the character was based off of a real person. Yes, Kevin Lee, wedding planner. I thought that was really hard to believe. And then you watched the clip? <laughs> and then you watched the clip of this uh, wedding planner, this like uh, wedding planner to the stars, and my jaw dropped. It, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of um, the, the guy who did The Room. Oh, Tommy Wiseau? Yes. Where it's like, it's like two, it's like, is this a joke? Is this real? Where's he from? What's that accent? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. He's amazing. He's just, I, he, if you are a Housewives fan, you will have seen Kevin Lee on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which I am. Uh, and he is known for throwing these insane, over-the-top, like, crystal-bedecked flowers everywhere. Yeah. He's this, uh, and and he is a legitimate, like, when some people are like, I am to the stars, but he is like a legitimate event planner to the stars. He did uh, yeah, yeah, Brad yeah. Pitt and Jennifer Aniston's first wedding. He did Frank Sinatra's funeral. Like he wow. he genuinely is to the stars. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. he has these big fuck off sunglasses and this mullet and like he's very flamboyant in the way he dresses and speaks the and the way he dresses the hand gestures oh, and yeah. he's he's a character. I mean it's it's yeah man. He loves this. He knows it's him. Martin Short actually worked with him, and he he knows oh. it's him. He talks about it, and he's he's proud of it. He's like, oh yeah, totally, a hundred percent that me. He he knows it's him. Um, I and but I also feel like Martin Short actually playing a tamed down version of Kevin Lee. Oh yeah, almost yeah. But his accent is funnier. Yes, very true. Because it's like, what was that sound that came out of your mouth? It takes a minute to adjust. <laughs> it is interesting, though, because at the time, people writing reviews are genuinely trying to pin down what the accent is. And it's an accent from nowhere. Like, it's just a weird He's Eastern European thing. Exactly. <laughs> he probably mixed a million accents. He was like, oh, yeah, a bit of this and a bit of that. And <laughs> exactly. And it's just, there's no rhyme or reason. And then uh, B.D. Wong, as his assistant, is also a Amazing. Uh, and you don't get to see B.D. Wong do comedy very often, and he's so yeah. good at it. And I want, so I want more B.D. Wong. That China also comes in a wonderful Sarah Lee yellow. Hi. You must be Frank? <laughs> I wish. I'm Frank's assistant, Howard Weinstein. Like, I feel like they could have had a spinoff of just those two characters. Yeah. I don't know. I want, I want doses. <laughs> I, want, ah, I want doses. I want more. I'm excessive. I was like, I want more. <laughs> uh, so in the sequel, which uh, is, is also based on the sequel of the 1950s version, which I love the title because it's Daddy's Little Dividend is what the 1950s sequel title is. Oh uh, Father of the Bride Part 2, a little more marketable for the 90s. Um, but uh, Martin Short said he decided to tone the accent down. Because he was oh. like, all right, so the joke in the first one is Steve Martin can't understand a word he's saying. But he's like, how much further yeah. can we take that joke? So he tones it down and he's a little, he's still very flamboyant and very goofy. But it's not, it's, he's not playing at 11 because there is just so much more of him. He obviously was the big breakout star of this. I understand that choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Steve Martin is also interesting for this too. Because one of the reasons I love doing the show is when you go back, like you think of an actor who's been around forever. And you're just like, oh, yeah, they've been a star forever. and Or they've always done this thing. 
And it's like, no, they started mm. doing this thing way later than you thought they did this thing. They were actually known for something earlier. Like, we talked about this when we talked about Kurt Russell and the film Breakdown. Great episode. Go back and give it a listen. Uh, he wasn't a star until, like, the mid-90s. He was known for yeah. B-movies and Carpenter, because all those Carpenter movies were flops, right? He was just palling around with his buddy doing stuff. They weren't the iconic movies at the time. And then he was a kid, a child star before that. He didn't become the Kurt Russell that we know as the that action know, star yeah. till the mid-90s. Same with Steve Martin here. At this point, Steve Martin was still known for doing like these big, wacky, broy comedies like The Three Amigos. Um, yeah. Faith so was that his off. like first like dad role? That's his first dad role. And Whoa. but the thing you're also seeing talking about generations watching this is these are people like dads who are watching this would have watched Steve Martin on SNL as a wild and crazy guy. And now they're yeah. seeing him. So with they their took kids. a risk on him. It's a, yeah, pretty much. So this would have been an unusual role for him. And wow. even Ebert is like, I, I like love them. that. I love, I love when they, they take a chance and they rebrand. It's kind of like, um, what's his name? Guardians of the Galaxy, Jurassic Park. Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt. He went from um, Parks and Rec playing the goofy, you know, the oddball. And then, they cast him as a leading man. And suddenly he's this megastar. Yeah. yeah. It, but I, I love that. I love when they when there's a rebranding yeah. and, and a risk. Well, and it makes sense with the nostalgia factor, right? Because these are people that two generations would have grown up watching. And so yeah. he's been in your home in various, various ways. You know who he is. So when he's talking to you man to man, you'd be like, or man to whatever, you know, parents. Yeah you would be um, you'd be so much more actively engaged because you know this person. And also, again, like broadening your audience, like or you're, you're, you're tapping into like, you know, all the comedy lovers and the SNL lovers and being like, yeah, come and watch this movie that's called Father of the Bride. That can be very perceived as a girly movie. It's, it's about a wedding. It's a chick. It's Nancy Myers. It's the quintessential chick flick. It basically invented yeah. the genre, which it did. But how but do you get the dudes to watch the chick flick? You call in Steve Martin. That's exactly that's exactly because exactly he also. I don't think people know this. He was the first superstar comedian. Like he's the first comedian who was started to sell out arenas. Also, can I just say that he's he like him and Martin Short like haven't aged. No, they really haven't. They look the same. Great genetics on those boys. Great tweaks and doctors, I'm sure, but great genetics as well. <laughs> but they they look, they look, they look the same. Yeah. This does they not feel aged. like a 30-year-old, that they are 30 years older now. Yeah. Because yeah. they're they're back on screen together in that... Uh, uh, only Murders that in the Building. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> And they're adorable. Now, did you clock the Eugene Levy cameo? Yes. Love Eugene Levy. He's so good. And but again, he was part of that that group, right? But the, he wasn't a star at that point. Again, because no, Amer also no, American Pie hadn't have come yeah. out. Like that was just them. Throwing what year was money. American Pie? Uh, Two thousand. Oh wow. Okay, yeah. so much earlier. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, but he was still wow. he was still doing stuff. He just again wouldn't have like people would have known him from bit parts and things, but he wasn't uh, he wasn't the dad yet, right? So again, you're seeing someone here like, oh, he's always been that Eugene Levy's always been around. He has, but he hasn't, not in the way we think of him, right? Yeah. 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 The last thing I kind of want to bring up as we're going through is that, like, the choices that people had this year, it's a really weird year for movies. And I'm sure people looking at our our um, our list will will see it. Terrible year for horror. We are doing no horror movies whatsoever this year because it's <laughs> such a bad year for horror. Uh, with the exception of the, the winner of the Oscar this year, the best movie of the year was, of course, Silence of the Lambs. So you have one of the greatest horror movies of all time and then nothing else. 
But this yeah. movie was released opposite Bugsy, JFK, and my own private Idaho. So what else are you going to bring your kids to at that point, right? So it was good timing for them. Kind of destined. And also, this is the same year that um, a Desert Storm went in. So, like, there is some—it's the first war we'd had since Vietnam, really. Like, yeah. the Cold War had just ended 1989. This was the first, like, oh, we got new enemies. So you want something soothing, right? You want something soothing. And I think the same thing happened— during COVID where we needed, I mean, one of the reasons why Ted Lasso did so well is because it was the right time. Everyone, people were craving a feel good, something that they can, that warms the heart after two years of isolation. So I think, I mean, I, I think that goes to show that timing is good. And if people needed a comedy, something light, something heartwarming, then 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 that's what they needed. Okay, so one more quick thing, just because it's adorable. And so, and I found this out when I was going down the rabbit hole where I was like, what is Kimberly Williams doing now? Well, she is now Kimberly Williams Paisley because she is married to country music star Brad Paisley. Uh, she actually works a ton in film, but this is kind of adorable. And there's like a country music style meet cute for them in the fact that Brad Paisley had actually taken a date to see Father of the Bride in 1991. And the girl he brought actually ended up leaving him for his best friend. And then he went to go see Father of the Bride part two by himself and sort of had like this click of like, this woman seems amazing. She seems funny and open and lovely. If only I could meet a woman like her. Well, he wrote a breakup song about the incidents of taking this woman to see Father of the Bride and then getting dumped for the best friend. And he had Kimberly Williams in the music video, at which point the two met, fell in love, and they uh, have been married since 2003. So adorable. That's, I love that. She was so good. She was so good. She's good. She's 19, and this was her first role. And yeah, I was reading about how... um, for the blender scene, she had to cry and she just was dreading that scene because she didn't know how to cry on cue. Which you, being an actor, you would think that would have been the audition scene, right? Yeah, but you could kind of fake it in an audition, like, because it's like, oh, they're like, oh, nerves or whatever. And they're also casting for so many other reasons than, you know, it's not just, oh, can she produce tears? You just assume that she, she can. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, you know, after 50 takes, she said that she started beating herself up and she was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a failure. I suck. I'm terrible. And then the, the tears came and that's the take they used. Well, that's yeah. good. Just beat yourself into an emotional pulp and then go. I mean, that's what we do as actors, you know, a little, uh. Sadistic. <laughs> that is the perfect place for us to end this episode. So as an actress, Kimberly Sue, how do people find you and your work and all the things you're doing? Uh, I am on Instagram at Murray, And uh, yeah, I post about my work. I post about me renovating my house. <laughs> aspirational. <laughs> aspirational. And uh, yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, and you can join us in two weeks where things are going to get a little complicated, romantically speaking, that is, because it's Dead Again and Zandalee. And we're going to be joined by Nicolas Cage expert, Lindsay Gibb, who's going to help us sort through the mess. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. 
Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Kimberly Sue Murray as our guest. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.